Hello. Hello. Hello, Jess. Fooled you there, didn't I? <laughs> and hello, everyone, and welcome to 361 Lifeline, episode 13, which is called Generation Gap. And the reason why I am laughing manically is because I've had a very strange morning so far. So I think, Jess, that we're going to have a very strange episode. And if you've, um, this is the first episode you've listened to, well, we are 361 Lifeline, and we're coming out to you twice a week, Wednesday and Sunday at 6 p.m. And we are Alice Smith, me, Manic Laughter, and Jess Hawks. Hi, guys. Hi, Jess. Hi, everyone. And uh, thank you once again to everyone who's listening to the podcast, giving us great feedback. And um, we, we're doing lots of random, different things. Sometimes they're very creative, like sleep, write, repeat. Sometimes they're really political. And uh, today, I would say, is probably going to be a political one. Um, and so, you know, mix it up, try out a few, see which ones you like. Let us know which ones you like. At the moment, because we're just starting out, we're experimenting. We're doing lots of different episodes, so no two episodes are the same. Um, so today we don't have any poetry for you. And I can see under here some of you sighing with relief. <laughs> and um, I've had other people who've said, oh, thanks, uh, Alice, for writing an angry poem about 50-year-old men in vegetable aisles. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. But today it's called Generation Gap. And I'm going to hand over to Jess for this episode and stop talking. Thank you, Alice, for that kind introduction. Um, so I did do a little bit of research before putting my questions together. And some of the questions that I was going to ask, I can't ask because they're more aimed at the generation above you. So... You've dodged a couple of bullets, I tell you now. <laughs> Great. So so what is this about questions? What's our format for today? Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions about various things, mostly to do with gender roles and kind of mental health between the two generations, yours and mine. And we could maybe look at how things were different and have changed. Sounds good. Okay. So the first one I decided that popped into my head was what are the main differences on the expectations of women and their roles between our two generations? Okay, so I'm going to just um, preface everything for the whole episode on these are just my views. And obviously I don't know. So, But I could just say I don't know for all of them, but then what pod podcast would it be? So these are just uh, my views and no one else's, but hopefully I can influence you sometimes. So I'm talking from um, the midlife generation here, which I like to call the me first generation. And I can say from my point of view that when I was growing up, we were very much uh, as in a working class family. We were very much second class citizens as girls. And then um, there was still an echo of that kind of um, uh, men are more important, you know, man, man children are more important. And um, for instance, at school, we weren't allowed to do woodwork and metalwork. We had to do domestic science, which was, I can remember, very getting very annoyed, even though I was only 14, that we had to take a man's shirt in and iron it. That was our one of our lessons. And uh, even then I was saying, why, why have we got to do this? Why have we got to do this? And I was told by everyone, 
family and teachers that because I'm going to be ironing men's shirts. Um, and uh, really, that is actually what I did um, upon marriage. I did iron my husband's shirts and then had two sons and ironed their shirts. That's probably another episode in the making. But the other expectations were to get married as early as possible, certainly by the time you finish university, and to then um, be engaged. Um, I was living with uh, my the person who became my first husband, and his mother came round and uh, refused to stay in the house because we were sleeping together and told him that we needed to be engaged, so that's why we got engaged. And then when we went to visit uh, the mother-in-law, um, she made me sleep downstairs on the floor without cushions instead of the, sharing the bed because we weren't married. And this was all, this isn't my sob story. This is just basically how it was. And um, then we were, we had to have, be on track to get married. And then as soon as we were married, uh, we had to, the society decided that we needed to have a mortgage. We never thought twice about it. We got the house. And then once we had the house, we were then told in no uncertain terms to start having children, which we did. And then when I'd had my first son, after about a year, everyone asked me when I'd have my next one. So I had my next one. And then from then on, um, it just carried on. It, it then went on to sort of like getting a bigger house and off we went. And um, I'm just telling you that, Jess, not to... Uh, help say that you feel sorry for me or anything i'm just talking for a generation uh, the generation now i'm hoping that as a young person you can start having compassion for us because we never even thought about any other choice we never thought about one of the things i really regret is that we never had um we could never be thinking about if we were a different gender or if we liked girls or anything like that and i'd like to have explored that um but that just was not an option um it wasn't even discussed and uh, so we were narrowly confined i'd say and where you look at um our generation now hopefully you can have some compassion for the people acting out in pubs and getting divorced because it's kind of like coming out of a very long tunnel for us in some ways it's interesting how many parallels in your story are very similar to my mother's. Actually, like that's quite an interesting note. Um, my mother wasn't married when she had me, and there was some stigma, even though it was her second marriage, though it was still some stigma for her as well. So that's an interesting point that there's probably a lot more freedom for people of our generation. But that that is quite but that's a shame because, yeah, the resistant materials and all the other texts were quite fun to study. I'm not going to lie. And it, it's weird that that's a defining thing. I guess some of that also touched upon, uh, some of your answer also touched upon my next question, which is what have been the main signposts of success for women of your generation? And do you think they've changed? Yeah, obviously, again, I'm just going to say it's my... Um... Uh, experience and not all people not all women experience this but I'm talking as a working class woman and I think class is something that we really need to bring into the debate and we don't do we we, we focus on lots of other issues but for working class females I think even now we're still slightly behind in the movement 
Um, and so we had this idea that we must, um, I was the first of my family to get a degree. And when I went to university, I didn't have anyone who could tell me what it was going to be like first. And I'm not exaggerating, no one, no one in my family, none of my friends. But what I did have was a very anti-feeling, why are you going to university? Why aren't you getting a job? And so at a very young age, 18, I was fighting that. Um, and I didn't have a concept of a degree as success in real terms. I just did it. And I did it blindly. And I think that kind of affected me socially at university. I found it hard to fit in because I'd, I'd had no experience of what it was going to be like. Um, and then to get a degree was seen as like outlandish, really, uh, where I came from. So it wasn't so much a positive success as you might think. Um, it was kind of like a mystery like being really odd and there was a kind of uh, idea that that you were selling out the working class roots as well which has stayed with me and helped me self-sabotage quite well throughout my life uh, and then yeah the the last ones were we just mentioned um house mortgage and uh, I signed on my mortgage that I would be fully paid up by the age of 45 and uh, this influences Jess a lot of our generation's behavior now because we, we're not where we were thought we were not only do we not have the happy ever after uh, if we're divorced um, and hopefully this is uh, enlightening you on why people do act as they do in bars where you've worked but also we didn't have this idea of um, uh, we didn't own our own house and this I've noticed with uh, friends of my own age that they've kind of jumped into new relationships with men who own houses. And it's really sad. I could understand it, but it's kind of sad because they have to sort of go along with the man who owns the house and fit in to their life. And I, and I just feel feel sadness about that, that that's what our generation are having to do to have a roof over our heads. It's interesting that homeowning homeowning is a marker of success for kind of both generations because a lot of my friends I've had a fair few amount of voice clips sent to me from various people um not regarding the podcast but just socially and a lot of them are frustrated with the idea that none of us are even going to be able to scrape the deposit together and it's interesting that even though we've had you know the housing crash we had the credit crunch people are still clinging on to that idea and not letting go of it because unfortunately for a lot of us it is going to be an unattainable thing and it is an interesting concept that that hasn't shifted even between the age divide but yeah so Stephen Jenkinson is somebody that I study a lot and he has a philosophy called Orphan Wisdom that you can find on the internet on YouTube. Check him out. And he's written a really fantastic book about elderhood called Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Troubled Time. Here's an extract. There are many cultures, usually cultures that have been in their home place for millennia, for which the young of anything is many things vibrant, able and the rest, but it is not beautiful. Whether it is a tree in the forest or the forest itself, whether it is the work of art 
or the ceiling of a hall, or the glance across a crowded room. The youth of anything is, for the moment, free of beauty. No young thing has been round long enough to achieve beauty. For these cultures, beauty comes with testing and trying and tempering. It comes with the stoop of age. There is no age before beauty, not for them. There is aged beauty, and the beauty that seems only to come with having been around. Age before beauty, they might say about our little epithet, is a crime against nature. Legions of kids are coming downtown from the North American suburbs, looking for prescription drugs. They're not mood alterers, and they aren't hallucinogenics. They are morphine's grim offspring. They are analgesics. They are pain relievers and they are one of the more pernicious prompters of addictions and their manufacturers know it. And young people in droves from the most materially prosperous culture on earth are at risk to themselves at this moment, self-medicating for pain, a pain not many anesthesiologists would countenance. The manufacturers know that too. So consider the etymology of the word anaesthetic. There is the negating prefix an, and then there is the word aesthetic, which means beauty, the capacity to make beauty and to recognise beauty. So the sum consequence of being anaesthetised is to be disabled where beauty is concerned, to be unable to make beauty or to know beauty or to perceive beauty. So who treats themselves for beauty? The beauty bereft, that's who. These kids aren't out on the corner looking for beauty in their lives. They've given up on beauty. They've lived its absence long enough. They're awash in the new and improved, the version 9.6 of everything, and many of them can't take it anymore. They've been obliged to proceed minus the presence of human agedness. They're 25-year-olds in competition with 55-year-olds for the same music, the same clothes, the same girl or boyfriend, the same payday and the same enlightenment. These young people are bereft of elders. What's their solution? Their solution is to disable that part of them that longs for that kind of human beauty. The time-sanctioned and the time-honoured kind. They've tried swearing off the stuff, but it doesn't work. The longing for aged beauty is involuntary and it's too strong. It takes strong medicine to get by without it. To make as if it doesn't matter anymore. Stephen Jenkinson, Orphan Wisdom. Next one, we're talking about things that influence people's behaviour. So do you think social media has changed the behaviour of either generation? Um, yes, and I think uh, all our listeners are going to agree. Uh, not exactly with how I think they've changed it, but it, but it has changed. So um i just remember a time uh all my life all my childhood we didn't have a phone 
in the house. Um, we had a phone when I was about 14. Before then, you had to walk up to a phone box to, to make a call and it smelled because people always peed in it. Um, and then we had this, people didn't know where you were, which was a great freedom. Um, and if you can imagine, you'd go somewhere and if you lost someone, well, you were pretty casual. You'd find them again eventually in the crowd, you know. You didn't do all this kind of like frantically phoning them, where are where are you? You just, and sometimes you never found them again. Um, well, if you dated people and you just finished with them, that was it. And somebody just contacted me on social media that I dated when I was 18. And then uh, one morning last week, I woke up and they'd sent me a photograph of us. And I just find this really strange behavior because um, <laughs> uh, that was a different time. And, and once it was over, it was over. And uh, once you stopped speaking to your friends and you went to university, you didn't catch up with them again. So for my generation, I just think it's really odd. And I find it unsettling that people are getting in touch with me now. And it's, I think it's to compare how they've done to compare to see if they are more successful in inverted commas than me and I just think let sleeping dogs lie in my generation I think no and I've just found people of my generation really competitive on Facebook and um, I don't like it I like to try and buy out uh, bow out of it I can't really speak for your generation what do you think has it has it changed how has it changed I definitely feel like the art of debate has been lost. We're very polarized, especially when in terms of political arguments and well, just arguments and a lot of things in general. Um, it doesn't help that certain algorithms are in place in certain social medias where you're either going to be sat in an echo chamber or reading like the exact opposite. I think a lot of the mental health issues that people of my generation have faced have been a direct result of having things repeatedly shoved in their face either overtly or you know subliminally what with things like the eating disorders and such a lot of the photos are obviously very well tailored kind of views on someone's life and I do think it warps our perceptions I think there's that as again having to sit there and watch people that like engage in debates with certain people that are older than you unfortunately like I've noticed there's quite a lot of hostility even discussing really basic topics and some of it's kind of predictably just kind of comical in a way but it definitely in terms of how friends have found it with things like dating they've found that a lot of people when they've been using online dating for example if they have that person on Facebook beforehand they won't sit and ask questions because they assume that they already know enough about that person to date them which I find really weird and there's just a few other things like that that I just find really really kind of messed up I agree with you there. I, I came off Facebook, um, managed to do it while I was living by the sea. And when I came back to live here, people were saying, are you on Facebook? And I said, no. And, and they looked at me really strangely. And then I sort of relented and put them on. I, they've, they've gone again now because I thought this is odd because when I met them, they didn't ask me anything. The conversation wasn't like, what have you been doing last week? They'd say things like, 
oh, last week you did the so-and-so, didn't you? And I just thought, this isn't real conversation. This is bizarre. Um, it's, as you say, it's kind of like Facebook takes the place of, of, of conversation about what you've been up to. Mm. It's an interesting one because a lot of like my inner circle of friends are the kinds of people, two of them live a few roads down and I won't see them for months because we're creative. So they're usually plugged into projects and busy and living their own lives. So maybe once every three months we'll drop each other a message and, you know, have, uh, how are you? Do you want to do coffee kind of thing? I personally mostly um, meme post on fa- like my Facebook thing. I share anything that I find funny, but that that's about it because, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, I think every person has an individual relationship with it, but it is interesting how it's shifted. There is a generation thing, you know, I, I just thought, wow, I haven't seen this person for 30 years since we snogged each other you know this is great so I'll, I was excited at first and so I messaged and then I didn't get any reply and then I realized that they'd contacted me but they didn't want to tell me what had happened in those last 30 years and and I just mm. I just find that really strange imagine that imagine seeing someone in 30 years time there's never going to be a meetup or anything it's just that they'll look at your social media and you're just like okay that's blown my brain it's not healthy. It yeah, it is quite invasive. Very. Anyway, we're going to have a little break now and then we'll be back with more questions on uh, and discussion on the generation gap. Hello and welcome back to our second and final part of the podcast. We are Alice Smith and Jess Hawks. Hi, guys. Hi, and we're 361 Lifeline, and we're just having a little bit of a chat about the generations, uh, and, and Jess is asking me a few difficult questions, but but we're actually talking from both generations as well. So what you got next, Jess? Well, since we've mentioned old flames and we've repeatedly mentioned dating and relationships, the next one I have to ask is, has there been a shift in attitudes towards dating and relationships? Oh, Jess, I, honestly, I think people my age listening to this are just going to hopefully going to agree with me here. Like we're like sitting ducks. We, we come out of a relationship that we might have been in since 1990. Imagine this. And we think the world's the same. And we go on Match.com and we can't believe it because people really want to date us and they want to meet us. And we go out with them. I went on Match.com straight after my second divorce. And honestly, I I got into so many difficult situations um, because people just wanted to sleep with me. It was just a real shock because I thought there was going to be some sort of dating and courting going on. And there was nothing that was just you meet them and then you're supposed to have sex with them straight away. And I was like, what has happened? What is going on here? So I had two choices. I could either go along with it or not. Um, and I do look back on that time and I, I just advise people now through 361 Recovery to please don't go on dating sites. It's totally up to you, but I, I'm giving you some advice. If you go on dating sites straight out of a divorce, it's really, in my view, very risky behavior um, because I was going there. I wasn't telling people where I was going. And I met some really, really, really strange people. And um, the other thing I'm going to say, uh, and, you know, it's 
may be critical of your generation, but I just feel now that people, you know, when you order a food on Tesco or something, I just feel like your generation, rightly or wrongly, this is my view, just pick people like, like you might pick some crisps to put in your basket and you where from where I'm looking it looks as if it's like food and you just pick that person as food for that night because you're hungry and then the next day you you do it again and from where I'm standing I think that's harmful um but you know feel free to disagree Jess it is an interesting one um because I do have to agree on certain ways. I did go on Tinder post John. That was an interesting. And I had some pretty nice, to be honest, I had some pretty nice dates out of it, but none of them really led anywhere. I didn't really go to bed with anyone off Tinder either. Um, Some of them are just kind of funny stories. I think the most successful one, that I had in terms of a date was with a guy uh, where we went and drank gin and discussed everything about music because that's what he taught and it was just really nice you know and I do think as long as you're being safe about it so let your friends know where you're you know what time you're at least expected to be home or what restaurant you're going to be in or have a kind of a safety net in place because women dating anyway if it's somebody you don't know even if you know them that well it's a kind of gray area and I've done plenty of risky things but I've definitely been on the receiving end of that whole pick a person and make them slot in place because I found a lot of the people on tinder were like that they just wanted a girlfriend and then couldn't deal too well with my wanting my own schedule the fact that I wouldn't shift my gym time to like people like that would end up on the no pile um I've also done a fair amount of the whole casual sex kind of thing rather than entering into relationships because I wasn't looking for anything serious so I think my view is rather different I think the sex right. thing is different because we, in our generation, on mass as a generation, we were taught that uh, the sex was had to be in a stable relationship, and um, then when we when we come out of that, you know, imagine coming out of a marriage, and imagine it's about to me, it's about learning. I do this analogy when I'm doing a talk about coming out of the cage and being a rabbit. If you let the rabbit out of the cage, it just goes round and round the edge of the garden waiting for a predator. It doesn't go out and quite happily know how to cross a road. And if somebody's been married for 10, 15, 20 years from my generation and they go on an online dating site, they urgently, urgently need emotional skills and um, street smarts, really, isn't it? Uh, Emotional street smarts because and I'm not being patronizing I really believe this because if you haven't got those street smarts and you're going back into that environment it's a new generation things are very very different and you're thinking that you're gonna you're gonna date someone for five or six times and then you might sleep with them it's all so much faster now for us for, for and and I you know I can't cope with that I can't cope with that speed and we never had it in our narrative 
that we could just have sex if we wanted, if we felt like it. We, it wasn't there. It, it wasn't in our working class girl narrative. We were more, that was kind of what slags did. That's what we've been taught. That's not what I believe now, but that's ingrained. So I think that's different, isn't it? Yes and no about the narrative. I'm going to point out that um, very much that was not a thing that was okay from my parents' perspective. Um, I have had many heated debate over various things with, for example, my stepdad over the years. Uh, my partner isn't allowed to stay over the night at all um, or in my bedroom unless the door is open. So... I, in some ways, I don't think it's changed because the narrative, again, around female sexuality hasn't changed that much. Wow, that is but, really sad to hear. <laughs> but it, it, it's an interest because I'm a financially independent woman and it's the same reason a lot of my female friends didn't move back, you know, to maintain our freedom. At least we have the option to do that. You know, I currently live in a platonic, you know, setup with a, man who's very lovely and we have a cat together but it's platonic and the amount of freedom I've been able to enjoy it is an absolute luxury but the amount of freedom that I've had through that has been a major like factor in my happiness and it is interesting that that is an interesting kind of divide but at the same time the whole slut shaming thing hasn't gone away at all Trafficking, essentially the selling of people as a commodity for sex or for slavery, is the moral issue of our times. It's estimated that there are more than 10 million children existing in some sort of slavery right now. Children are sold for their virginity in places as far apart as Nepal where they're actually moved through the mountains to India and Pakistan, where there are brothels full of 10-year-old girls. But it's not just countries like this. America has a huge problem with the biggest state for trafficking being Washington. But we must also not forget Miami and Las Vegas, anywhere where people gather to have a good time. 70% of victims of trafficking are women, unsurprisingly. And the biggest countries for child trafficking currently are in Latin America and the Caribbean. The whole industry, in inverted commas, is worth $150 billion. And $99 billion is made from the sexual exploitation of mostly women. I guess this leads on to the next question. So is progress being made in terms of achieving equality? And in what ways has it happened? No, no, and no. <laughs> uh, from, I would say from the big wide world, um, I'm going to use 2016, I went to WAVE Berlin, Women Against Violence in Europe, Berlin. I was crowdfunded through Goddess Education and I was absolutely shocked by this is kind of like European experts talking about 
uh, gender equality. And I think the two big things that came out of it was sex work, um, the, the feminist views on, the, on that and on that phrase um, very polarised between sex work and, and sex workers having rights and, and people just shouldn't be doing prostitution. Um, and so I think that's uh, an area for the future for equality um, and, and again polarises the generations there um, between this idea of sex work and and basically selling your body is bad. Um, and the other, the other thing that came out there was... Um, and, and I was quite shocked. Uh, trafficking, so that's the big, the number one biggest problem for gender equality at the moment. The sex trafficking that's going on all over the world, but it just came up again and again, and it it, it curled your hair, you know, when you went to Berlin because I went as a domestic abuse survivor, and and although that's uh, a big issue for me it paled in comparison with the stories I heard of girls being lined up on borders for the border guards at, from the age of 14 and and just being used uh, so yeah those two things I mean I bet you didn't expect me to say that but they're the they're two things that kind of blew my mind and and, and seem to be on in 2016 anyway seem to be the equality hot potatoes if you like I'm not surprised that you've mentioned it at all. Um, sex trafficking is something I'm not too aware about. And unfortunately, it is an ongoing problem. And I'm not shocked that that was still a main thing. It, it's extremely sad that that isn't changing. And the sex working stigma personally I think is kind of disgusting if you look at the amount of graduates that have had to do it to fund their degrees and the amount of people you know a lot of people are forced into it out of desperation more than because it's something they want to do but at the same time if it's done consensually and above board like it's it's a complicated topic, but at the same time, it isn't. And it's like when people identify and identify as swerfs. Have you heard that term? No. Um, so it's a sex working, exclusionary, radical feminist. For people listening, there are two terms that I absolutely cannot stand. People that identify as swerfs and people that identify as turfs. TERFs are trans-exclusionary radical feminists. What does this all mean? Um, the... Okay. Saying, are you saying that these groups, this group is women who were born as women and they are against um, I get, saying that trans women are real women? Is that is that right? Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, that would be, that would be a TERF. Say so someone who is biologically female at birth. Um, would be excluding someone that's trans, so that's a turf. And then a swerf is, uh, well, just a feminist. I don't know if they're cis, but they're against including sex workers within the dialogue of feminism. Yes, I've met this one of these women then because I went to a workshop that was on um, uh, prostitution 
and um she it was all about how um it should be banned completely and she was very she was about 65 and she was getting really angry so is is that an example of that where where someone's saying it's wrong and it shouldn't be ever be yeah that would be an example of i yeah can't agree with people that are anti-sex worker especially in the current economic climate and knowing a few people that have done some form of it over the years so is it is it more likely to be a, this be a generation thing or or do you get people of the younger generation who are anti-sex work as well um you get a few people of our generation that probably don't understand it you get a fair few people that will slut shame strippers you will get a varied opinion on it but i know a fair few people that have actually had to engage in sex work in order to do simple things like pay their rent because unfortunately the economic climate isn't just that we can't be homeowners you know a lot of people are struggling to finish their degree and that's the reality when people sit there and say it and sex work is a whole spectrum as well a lot of people associate it with just the prostitution just the stripping but there is an entire spectrum behind it and it's such an odd concept like the main issue is not the people producing that it's usually the people buying and exploiting it well this is this is the same thing that we're talking about sex trafficking isn't it because women are commodities you know and in nepal they're being um trafficked over to india but when they get to be um when i think the girls are 10 it's huge and and you know so a 10 year old girl in nepal is a commodity for i don't know who it is in india who wants them but somebody does um i'm not being being anti-indian i'm just saying that that's what's happening at the moment um and so 10 year old girls are suddenly a commodity to be marketed and taken through those mountains and that's their life and it's huge it's all over the world this this kind of idea of uh women as commodities for, for appetites it's nothing new is it really but i feel sick thinking about it yeah no i completely agree it's nothing new but you only have to look at the amount of illegal porn that ends up on some pretty big porn sites as well it, it's not surprising that i think that's the worst part about it it's predictably disappointing According to recent statistics, more than 10% of undergraduates engage in sex work to fund their degree. This can be attributed to the reluctance of larger corporations such as Waterstones to pay a living wage and the rise of zero-hours contract. On the other hand, some critics argue that students could take retail and bar work and that the millennial generation wants to make more fash, more cash, quicker and faster. What's clear is that sex work is here to stay for the typical undergraduate, despite Oxbridge universities banning part-time work. This ban and the subsequent feminist dialogue in universities seems to suggest that this is more of a class issue. 
working class students are stuck in a rut between really high tuition fees, lack of maintenance loan and a demand for cash. On the other hand, sex work can lead to anxiety and PTSD. It's argued that it is over-glamorised in films and TV. It always has been. And it's clear that there's going to be a divide between those who think that sex work is essential for the cash and those who think that there are other ways. Um, Okay, I've got one more question, which is what role models did your generation have when you were growing up and which people from your generation would you pick to represent you now? Oh, Jess, that's a really difficult one. Um, I personally liked this is I suppose I did never really went along with my generation you're probably not surprised to know that so while everybody else liked Duran Duran and all them I liked the what we call gender benders sorry if this is um, not a great term now but it was the, the term that came out when I was a teenager and so I really liked Boy George and um, despite what later happened to him <laughs> And um, Jimmy Somerville, uh, I went to see, uh, they were called um, Jimmy Somerville and the Communards, went to see them at the powerhouse in Birmingham when it existed. And, you know, and then they, they did this thing called Red Wedge and it mixed la- the Labour Party with music and it was Paul Weller and lots of other people so I looked up to them I suppose I've always been an outsider that's looked up to people who wanted change and I don't know why Jess but I've always championed LGBT and I've always got very very angry from when I was young um and I still I still have that about me now so so for me it would be um I it's really difficult to say who is a role model now because I think being a cranky woman that I am I'm just so angry with the people that we are supposed to have as role models like Kylie Minogue, uh, Jennifer Lopez, Jennifer Aniston. I'm heartily sick of people turning 50 and we're presented with these airbrushed images Um, and you know even to a certain extent Helen Mirren has become I was slightly interested in how she was being portrayed, but now it's just about how she can sell skincare and and how she can still look good for her age. And I'm crying out for role models for me, for clever women that are saying something. And I'm having to have male role models still when I'm studying because I can't find them. I, I don't think it's that they're not there. I just think that older women are not getting the exposure and I'm going to have to search harder to find my female role models. How about you? Who are your role models? That's a pretty fair take. I'm quite loving Jane Fonda at the moment, actually, uh, with her current escapades on the anti-climate change protests and getting constantly arrested. Um, She also recently did... um, star in I think it's Grace and Frankie which is probably the first thing I've ever watched where it's portraying older women in a very progressive kind of gaze um in terms of 
other role models. It's an interesting one. Because there are lots of people I look up to and admire for various different reasons. Benjamin Zephaniah was a huge influence on kind of why I got into poetry. I think he's a brilliant role model. Um, in terms of a lot of them, though, I do look more historically because there's a lot more coming to the surface now about women that we actually didn't know because it has never been kind of taught or the angle that you look at. If you look at Anne Boleyn, changed an entire country's religious leanings by refusing to marry someone because she had ambition, for example. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I, another pretty brilliant one in terms of how they navigated military kind of prowess. If you look at Ada Lovelace, she invented, you know, kind of computer coding, I believe is what she's attributed to, or at least like the premise for it so that we could have modern computers, which I think is amazing. Um, it, but it depends in terms of modern role models, it's harder to pick from because we also live in a call out culture. So the moment anyone achieves something, it seems there's a lot of push to focus on the negative aspects, especially in regards to women. So it gets very kind of complicated, but a lot of the role models I had picked for things like sport definitely ended up selling out to sell products, which is devastating. Yeah, I'm the same. I think that was a really good question, Jess. And, you know, listeners, if you heard us pause, that pause says something. We can't instantly give you role models. The, you know, the it's in the silence there. I, I've had to learn, I've had to watch the male in films, you know, there's older male films, there's older male shows. I just watched this Kaminsky effect or method with Michael Douglas. It was quite good, but there was just this representation of older men. And, um, you know, there isn't, let's face it, there just isn't that much out there for us except these airbrushed versions. I mean, I just can't understand why we're celebrating people for not looking 50. I can't get my head around this. <laughs> I think we're doing it because we can uh, create a consumer culture around it. The lack of LGBT role models as well um, in terms of how LGBT history is taught because a lot of them got erased or at least their sexuality erased in the history books is another interesting point. I think that's a whole podcast in itself. Well, you've helped me to remember my absolute role model that I got to meet a couple of months ago, Peter Tatchell. Uh, from who founded Stonewall and who got beaten up and had brain injury after taking on uh, Robert Mugabe. Um, and he's just like a complete kick-ass LGBT activist. And I actually got to be in the same room as him, which I was dead excited about. And uh, so, yeah, he's my role model. Okay, still a man, but um, I can't think of a female equivalent. I mean, I'm going to be the female equivalent of Peter Tatchell. How about that? Sounds like a good aim. Sounds like a very good aim. And how about you? Who are you going to aim to be, Jess? I don't know yet. That's the thing. I'm currently a bit of a spanner in the works with the whole lockdown thing. I don't know what the future holds at the moment. So, Well, we'll keep keep on trucking, but thank you. They were really difficult questions, Jess, and uh, thank you for your take on them. Um, You've really made me think. And listeners, I hope you've had something to chew over uh possibly get annoyed at depending on your age when you're listening i mean i mean do you know what jess uh, 
most people my age get really annoyed with what I'm saying. So I know I'm on the right track. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm calling out my age group. I'm challenging them. I'm calling them out to get their act together and start becoming elders that young people can look up to. And yeah, I'm not getting invited to parties, but I just don't care. They're, that's that's where I am. Um, and so listeners, I hope you have enjoyed it from wherever, whatever age you're from, whatever planet. <laughs> and um, we'll be back next time, won't we, Jess? We will do. Thank you for answering all the questions. It's been an interesting podcast indeed. Thanks, Jess, and thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Role Models by Alice Smith, 361 Blog. Where are all the role models? Walk down any city centre, street from 8pm on a Saturday, 4pm in seaside towns, and you will see women in their 40s and 50s acting like it was still the 1980s. Hop on a train on Friday or Saturday evening and see men, who could be grandfathers, leering, shouting and sometimes verbally abusing women of all ages. What fun! Are we still in the 1980s? Every society has elders, right? Where are they? I'm not talking about older people or elderly people, I'm talking about elders, role models. TV is full of women who look strangely grotesque past 40. Where are the real wise women? I see plenty of drunk women on the streets dressed up, whether it's Halloween or not. Where are the older women who could teach younger women? And why are so many sprayed across the pavement on the arms of hugely overweight middle-aged men or being sick with fellow divorcees? What happened to role modelling? When we break up with a partner or get a divorce, society positively encourages us to revert to teenage behaviour. I know, I'm not lecturing, I did it. Twice. I never paused to think what I was doing. I went out partying, met younger men and drank to excess. I felt like I was on this very fast merry-go-round and I liked it. It stopped me thinking but more importantly it stopped me feeling. I became a walking cliche, fur coat, no knickers, sports car and a young guy who could be easily impressed simply with my Smith's vinyl. I was well and truly lost. I had gone back to the start to begin again but it didn't feel right though. My body and my mind were telling me that I had been there and done that, but I did not listen. Alcohol and sex shut that voice up as long as I did both to excess. Stop the ride, I want to get off. After a divorce and after a breakup, after any great loss, we are no role models. We are broken. But within our failure and our loss are the seeds of that role modelling. Six years on, I can safely say that I can be a role model exactly because of those losses and those mistakes. That ridiculous teenage behaviour and that decision to step off the merry-go-round. 
why did I step off that 360 circle? There were many reasons and many lessons I learned on the merry-go-round before. I've rolled them all up. My experience from two divorces, a repossession, PTSD and motherhood into the 361 recovery programme. It's a gift from one survivor to another. The 361 sits you down and asks you, what would my life be like if I stopped the ride and got off? And I can tell you, quieter, less drama. And I can hear that voice now, that wise voice we have inside us after all that life experience. Anyone can be a role model. If I can do it, believe it, anyone can. But what's the first step? 361 recovery program more at 361 life support.co.uk so what is an elder maybe it's easier to say what an elder isn't an elder isn't safe and an elder isn't your friend. More from Stephen Jenkinson. Come of age, elderhood in a time of trouble. The need to feel safe, if it is a need and not a self-serving demand, is understandable. It's worthy of consideration and of compassion, but it is the first casualty of those moments ripe with indecision that are the handmaidens of wonder, the midwives of learning. You have no way to know everything will be okay once you get to the other side of learning. And it's deeply unbecoming of older people to hold out for feelings of safety before risking it all for the sake of a better day. And it's dereliction of duty to do that in the presence of young people. Here's my proposal. The life of an elder is not an exercise in risk management or damage control. Just as love is a very strange place to go for safety, elders are another strange place to go to for safety. If safety means anything goes to you, if it means there's no consequences for your self-exploration or for taking a few years off from the strange days or from the heartache of being awake, then elders endorse danger because they're unwilling to collude with you in your escape. They are faithful to a fault to life and that's all. Sometimes it looks as though they're your friend when they're faithful that way, but sometimes it doesn't. Elders are not your friend. The difference comes down to whether you want to hear from them or you want to hear yourself come out of their mouths. You're not safe. And they see to that. And that's it. Do you know any elders?